what a gift it is to have you with us here today. We are almost at Easter Sunday, two more weeks to go. Thanks, Brenda, you're the best. And um, we have an exciting, exciting couple of weeks coming as a church, you guys. Next Saturday for Spring Fest, I'm telling you, the, the people have been working so hard to make this the greatest party of all time. I'm not even exaggerating. It will be the greatest party your kids have ever experienced, ever. There's going to be three food trucks, three of them. Come and eat some food, somebody. A snow cone truck, a truck entirely dedicated to snow cones, you guys, okay? That's going to be great. And then Easter Sunday's the following week, and it is going to be an incredible time of worship. We have two worship gatherings uh, that Sunday, 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m., so pick your service now and get there early. You're not going to want to miss a moment of this service. It is going to be incredible. Um, during service, during worship, we're doing baptisms, you guys. Baptisms in the house. I'm so excited. The last time we were able to do baptisms inside was 2019. It's still one of my favorite services we've ever done. And, uh, and so I cannot wait to have that in here again this Easter Sunday in two weeks. And so listen, if you are here and you are a recent follower of Christ, but you haven't taken the step of baptism, baptism was so important to Jesus that he did. As he stepped into his public life of faith and ministry, he was baptized, and he calls you to do the same thing. He tells us to get baptized, and so if, if you became a Christian recently, and you haven't done that yet, it's a next step for you, and if you have been a follower for a long time, but you've never done it, then it's a next step for you as well. Baptism really is a symbol. It's an important symbol of uh, a public profession of faith, of letting your church family and the world know that this is who you are now. You are made new in Jesus' name. And so sign up for baptisms on our website, gatherashville.org slash baptism. We would love to dunk you in the holy hot tub. And so give us the opportunity in a couple weeks on Easter Sunday. Well, hey, we're finishing up our series today on Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. Let me catch you up on my guy Jonah. Jonah was a Jewish prophet uh, and God gave him an assignment. His assignment was to go to a city called Nineveh. It's a real city, very famous city in ancient history. It was the capital of a country called Assyria. And Jonah was to go to Nineveh and warn them that they have 40 days to stop their wickedness and sin or they would be overthrown. Jonah doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want this calling. He doesn't want this job. He doesn't want this mission. We presume it's because he's afraid of these people. They were known for their violence. They were known for creative ways of killing people, for killing religious people and prophets. Most of all, they were known for their hatred of the Israelites. Most of all, a lot of reasons he should be afraid. We presume that's why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and he runs the other way to a place called Tarshish, or rather, he sails. He gets on a boat and sails away. Come sail away. It's this great moment, like from the Sticks song. And uh, all of a sudden, a storm comes up. God causes the seas to be angry. And the sailors are trying to figure out how to save the ship and themselves. And Jonah says, toss me overboard and all will be well. And they do. They're like, cool. And they throw him overboard and sploosh. All of a sudden, calm seas. Everything's great. Meanwhile, Jonah's in the water, floundering around a little bit. And a giant flounder swallows him up. 
He's now in the belly of a fish. He chills there for three days. He makes a raft. He puts a lantern up. He's writing down the book of Jonah from inside the whale or fish or whatever sort of sea creature it was. And so three days later, Jonah's been in prayer and being digested for a couple days, and he starts to tell God that he is ready, that he's ready to submit to his will, that he's going to do whatever God calls him to do, that he was wrong to run. And so the fish throws him up onto the shore along with some other digested things. Jonah gets a shower and he goes to Nineveh. He goes, he follows, God's call comes on him a second time and Jonah goes and follows the word of the Lord and he goes to Nineveh. Nineveh is so big, it takes three days to walk from one end to the other. It's 60 miles from one end of this city to the other end of this city. It's enormous, one of the biggest cities in the ancient world. Jonah's walking through this place, just declaring the, the word of the Lord. You have 40 days to clean up your act, or your whole city will be overthrown. And the people hear it, and they immediately repent. They immediately say, I'm going to follow God. We don't want to be overthrown. We want to give our heart to him. They put sackcloths on, which was a way of showing that they were in mourning, a way of showing that they were humbling themselves before God, and even the king heard Jonah's message and said, we will repent before God. We will worship him. I'm declaring a fast across the whole land. Everybody fasts. Even the animals don't eat. And maybe God's wrath will relent upon us. And at the end of Jonah chapter 3, it says, God's wrath was relented on the people of Nineveh. That means God had made up his mind that they deserved justice for all of the evil things that they had done. But because of the conditions of their hearts to truly change and repent, God changed his mind. He changed his mind about it and said, I'm going to forgive these people and give them my grace and my mercy instead. Wow. Incredible three chapters of Jonah. Jonah 4 takes a turn, you guys. It gets, it gets wild fast. We learn some things about Jonah. Are you ready? Let's look at the text. Jonah chapter 1, 4, verse 1. God relented his wrath on these people, rescued them. You're thinking, as a preacher, Jonah's like, praise, this is amazing. He's starting to like call all of his preacher buddies. He's like, listen to the great victory I had in the city of Nineveh. He's, he's posting about it on Instagram, little snippets of the message that he just taught, and everybody's watching him on repeat. He must be so excited. Nope, that's not what happens. Let's look. But Jonah, to Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. This is exactly what I was trying to avoid. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Drama. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. He was like, I love this plant. What a day. 
But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And these are Jonah's last words in the book of Jonah. This is the last thing that he says. The last, the last sentence from the man who the book is about says, I'm so angry that I wish I was dead. Why? For two reasons. One, because God's wrath relented on the Assyrian people. And two, because the plant that was giving him shade died. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And that's where the book of Jonah ends. It just stops right there. Jewish tradition and oral retellings of this story do have another ending where it keeps going for about two or three more verses. And in the oral history of Jonah, Jonah repents of his attitude and his heart and he submits to God's will, declaring he's a fool to believe that he knew better than God. That's what the tradition says, but that's not what's written in the text. In the text, God gets the final words. So let's look at this chapter and ultimately this book and see what we can learn from it. First, I want to look at Jonah's reaction to the compassion of God on the people of Nineveh. Jonah's reaction. Because when I look at Jonah's reaction, it makes me ask the question, who is worthy? Who who is worthy? Look at these first couple verses again. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. It's a lot to unpack here. First, let's begin with the revelation that Jonah didn't run to Tarshish and get swallowed up by a fish because he was afraid of being harmed by the Ninevites for preaching the word of God, that it was not his motivation. According to the scriptures, Jonah's motivation to run away from Nineveh was because he was afraid God would have compassion on the people of Nineveh. He was afraid God would relent his wrath from the people of Nineveh. He was afraid they'd be spared, saved, redeemed by God. And that is not what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted these people to be judged. He wanted justice. He wanted the ancient enemies of Israel to be finally judged for all the bad things they had done. He wanted them to meet their end. He wanted it in a blaze of fire. He hated these people. God called him to give that message, and he ran so that they would never get it. They would never see it coming when they were obliterated. Jonah's hope was that the 40-day timeline stood no matter whether or not they heard the message, and that they would never hear it, so that they would just be wiped off the face of the earth. 
This changes things about Jonah, doesn't it? It changes the story. No longer is Jonah some scared hero who ends up doing the right thing. He's a bitter religious person with hatred buried in his heart who reluctantly obeys God, hoping to see God give out the justice that he believes is right. Who then becomes angry when God lives out his nature by showing compassion and mercy. And it's a nature that Jonah was well aware of. That's why he ran in the first place. He was worried God would do what God does and forgive these people. Jonah raises a pretty big question here. Who is worthy of God's redemption? And who is not worthy? How far does somebody have to go to be written off? And who gets to be the judge? How far does somebody have to go to be considered unworthy of redemption? So we've got a pretty big sense of justice in our day and age. Or I should say that we have a pretty big sense of what Nietzsche called herd morality. Herd morality. Herd morality is when morality isn't defined by a set of absolutes determining right and wrong, but rather by what the crowd deems as right and wrong in the moment. We live in a world screaming out for tolerance that is completely intolerant of anyone who disagrees with who is or who is not worthy of that tolerance. In some ways, our herd morality has made us better as a culture and as a people, kinder, softer. And in other ways, it's made us worse. But for better or worse, the herd mentality, morality that we live by has confused us about who really gets to decide who is and who is not worthy. Worthy of grace, worthy of love, worthy of redemption, worthy of peace, and worthy of a future. The text reads, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Because there was no absolute for Jonah. There was what was absolute to Jonah. Relative. Probably to most Israelites, it would be very wrong to consider Nineveh worthy of God's love and grace. Nineveh and Assyria was a long-standing enemy of Israel. If you read through the Old Testament, its pages are filled with conflicts between Israel and Assyria. The Assyrians were vicious peoples, warlike peoples, who were constantly trying to conquer and expand their borders, constantly performing war. And Israel was bordered to it, and so they were an easy target. They were always going up to war against Israel. Ancient history outside the Bible tells us that the Assyrians were particularly brutal in their tactics. That once they conquered a village or a city, they would take the women of that city, decapitate them, and post their heads on stakes all around the city to show that the Assyrians had beaten them. They were a vicious people. And the Israelites were constantly one of their targets. In fact, in Israelite history, just 40 years later, after the book of Jonah, Assyria conquered Jerusalem and created a brief period of exile. The very first period of exile that the people of Israel had to experience was at the hands of Assyria. That's a story I'll finish up later. You're wondering, wait a minute, I thought they redeemed themselves. Well, it wasn't permanent. 
And a new king came who hated Israel as much as the one who had converted to Christianity, to Judaism. And he went back to war with the Israelite people. This was their constant enemy. So to most Israelites, Assyria would be considered a great candidate for extinction. They didn't want the people of Assyria to have access to God the way they had access. They felt like that was just their right. They didn't want the mercy of God available to the people of Assyria. They wanted it for themselves. This was still a problem when Jesus came around. It's highlighted in John chapter 4 when Jesus confronts the hatred that exists between the Israelites and the Samaritan people. Jews hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans believed they had access to God at a place they held sacred, but the Jews believed God could only be accessed at the temple. The Samaritans weren't a part of one of the tribes of Israel. They weren't considered perfectly Jewish, and so they were cast aside and ostracized, and the Jewish people wouldn't go anywhere near them, wouldn't talk to them. If they were passing on a road, they'd go to opposite sides of the road, and a normal pathway from one Jewish territory to another should have passed through Samaria, but instead they would go a whole extra day's journey around in order to not be within its borders. These people had each other. But Jesus confronted that. He took his disciples on a path directly through Samaria into an interaction with the Samaritan people. He shared the gospel that he was the Messiah with a Samaritan woman in the middle of a day and not one of a good reputation. Jesus pushed against this idea, just as God does in the book of Jonah. The religious leaders of Jesus' times were constantly uh, making judgments about who was worthy within their own people. They were criticizing Jesus' decision to hang around tax collectors, lawyers, and sinners. They considered those people unworthy of any rabbi's time. Any, Any holy man shouldn't be around people like this, let alone should he be showing them love, kindness, grace, and mercy. They weren't worthy of it. Even after the resurrection of Jesus in the days of the early church, this was a problem. People deciding who is and who is not worthy. Acts chapter 15 talks about the Jewish Christians having real problems with the newly converted Gentile Christians. Those are people who were Greek and Roman, Asian, Ethiopian, who were not Jewish and converted to Christianity. There was a sect of Jewish Christians called Judaizers that were demanding these people conform to the Jewish practice and law before they could be accepted by Christ, even though Jesus never said that. Today, we're not so different. We separate into groups and we alienate and ostracize people who think differently than us. We draw invisible lines in our mind about who is and who is not worthy of God's mercy and his grace and his redemption. And we all have different ideas about justice and we're pretty adamant about it. Like we all agree that someone who hurts kids should get the absolute worst kind of punishment. Worst kind of punishment. But someone who hurts a criminal, we have strongly differing opinions about. 
What should we do with a criminal who's put into the justice system for murder? Death penalty, life in prison. We, we defer. Strong opinions in different directions. And so who gets to decide whose sense of justice is right and whose sense of justice is wrong? Who gets to decide? That's the second thing we see in Jonah chapter 4. The question is raised, whose job is it to decide? Jonah quotes the nature of God from Exodus chapter 34 in the passage. This is a really important passage to the people of Israel. Because this is the very first time uh, that God declares not only his name, but he solidifies his name and he declares his nature. Something that ancient kings would do is they would declare their nature alongside their name. It would let you know what kind of king they were, what kind of ruler they were. And God follows this same format when he, when he reveals himself further to Moses. He says his name, Yahweh, was, is our best way of pronouncing the name of God, Yahweh. He repeats it twice, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's translated uh, Lord, Lord in this passage. The compassionate and gracious God. Order was really important in the Hebrew language. The way that you would say something would, would give you an idea of priority. And so the very most important thing about yourself is what you would list first. What does God think the most important thing for you to know about him is? His compassion. The compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. This is exactly what Jonah quotes. I know this about you, God. I know you're compassionate and you're gracious. I know that you're forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. I know that's who you are. And I don't want you to be that for the Assyrian people. Because this is who God is. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. That's also in there. Because God is just. And he does punish sin. But he is compassionate first. And even though he brings justice, he also brings love and forgiveness in the same hand. It's measured out and the scales are weighed not by our sense of morality, but by God's sense of morality. This chapter and this book ultimately make the argument that God is the only one who is worthy of judging who is worthy. He is the only one who is worthy of answering who is worthy of his grace, of his love, of his kindness, of his redemption. That there is none other who ever even comes close to having the right to decide. To illustrate this, God gives Jonah an object lesson. It says in verse 4, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry. You don't like the way that God operates in this portion of the Bible, the way that he thinks, the way that he does it. Is it right for you to be angry? 
Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. He is still hoping that something terrible will happen to these people. That's why he leaves the city, so that he would be safe. And he built a shelter so that he could just sit there and watch with his arms crossed. And then the Lord God made a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade over his head. <coughs> And to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Let's begin here with Jonah's response to this. God gives him an object lesson. God loves to give object lessons in the Old Testament. I love a good object lesson too. It's fun. And God wants Jonah to understand physically, to see what his decisions are like. Jonah is so excited about this plant. He loves it. He probably had a name for it. He's like some of y'all are with your house plants. He had a little spritzer. He didn't have a spritzer. Jonah didn't do anything for the plant. So Jonah loves this plant He's excited about it. He didn't plant it. He didn't make it grow. It just grew up and gave him shade, and he loved it. And then it died. And he's so mad that it died, his response is that it would be better off for me to die than to live. It is the second time he says this in this chapter, and it is not the last. He says it again in verse 9. Three times. In these 11 verses, Jonah says, I want to die. What do we make of that? To me, it shows that there's more to the story than what we know. Jonah is ready to die rather than to have these people live. He gets sunburned and hot, and he wants to die. He doesn't like God's response, and he wants to die. This just tells me that Jonah's not in a good place. Jonah's heart's not in a good place. His emotional state is not in a good place. For reasons we're not really fully given, Jonah's living in some real pain here. He's got a lot going on underneath the surface. And Jonah's reaction towards God's mercy on these people is a direct result of his own personal pain. Because something that is true 100% of the time is that hurting people hurt people. Our pain is never only on the inside. It comes out. And the less we learn to deal with it, the more we impose it on the people around us. Jonah's life experiences, his insecurities, his bitterness, his racism, his hatred for the Assyrians. Maybe pain he experienced at their hands. Maybe the experiences of somebody he cared about being hurt by these people have informed his ability to show grace over these people. Jonah's pain is informing who he believes is and is not worthy of God's redemption. Which is exactly why we are not fit to pick and choose what we like in the Bible and why we are not fit to pick and choose who is worthy of God's mercy and why. We are a different person when we are hungry than we are when we are full. 
I can be vastly swayed in personality by a chicken sandwich. So how could I think that it should be up to me about what is and is not right in the word of God? How can I think that it should be up to me about what is and is not right in the justice of God? Who is worthy of God? Who is worthy of his love? Who is worthy of his attention? Who is worthy of his presence? We are changed and shaped by every moment of pain that we live through. We develop biases. We are influenced by our culture, by our friends, by the morality of the herd around us. What we think is right today will be condemned tomorrow. And yet, so often, we believe that we know more than God knows. We think we're a better judge of right and wrong than God is. We think that his words have lost relevancy or power because they don't make sense to us. We disagree with his calling because it's too hard in the world that we currently live in. But God causes a plant to grow and give shade and then wither and die and the sun to shine bright all in one day. To show Jonah that Jonah has no control over anything and God has control over everything. In the book of Job, a lot of bad things happen to one man. And in the end of the book, he cries out to God and questions why all of this has happened to him. And God's answer is just basically to remind Job that he can't see the larger picture. He can't see the big picture. He can't see what God sees. Job 38, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Where were you? God's point is clear there. It's clear in Jonah. God created us and everything around us. And he gets to decide what is moral, what is right, and who is worthy. There's two ways that I want you to interpret this biblical truth today. The first one is in direct relation to you. In direct relation to you. Maybe you believe somewhere deep down in your heart that you are not worthy of God's love and redemption. Maybe you believe that because you had a broken father who did not love you the way you deserved to be loved and left you scarred and hurting and filled with a belief that you are not good enough, You believe you are not good enough. Maybe you had a bad marriage where your husband or your wife made you feel unlovable. They gaslighted you, abused you, neglected you so much that you just swallowed up a truth inside that that is what you deserve. That it's all you deserve. Maybe it's just self-imposed. From the time you were young, you struggled to receive praise and applause and compliments and congratulations. You self-sabotage every relationship that you've ever been in because you don't think you're worthy of it. But you're wrong. Because it's not your earthly father's place to decide if you are worthy. And it's not your husband or your wife's place to dictate if you are worthy of love. It is not your right to decide if you are worthy of sacrifice. Only the one who created you, the one who made you, gets to decide that. And here is what he says. John 3.16 God so loved the world. Not everybody but you. Not everybody but this group of people, that group of people. Not everybody but people who do this. 
For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think his feelings for you have been made abundantly clear. You are worth the sacrifice of the Son of God. That is where your value is defined. There's no but, no exception, no exclusions. He loved you so much that he sacrificed for you. And your value has been set. And it is so high that it can only be paid once and it can only be paid for all. You are declared worthy of love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and sacrifice by the only one who is or ever will be worthy to declare your value. The second interpretation of this passage is the final point for today, and that is this. The gospel is for all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people without exception. Look one more time at the conclusion of this book. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? It is, Jonah said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, but you didn't tend it or make it grow. Sprang up overnight, it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left? Many animals. God puts Jonah in his place. Jonah, you don't have one ounce of responsibility over these people. But I do. I made them. I love them. And I'm concerned for every single one of them and their dogs too. The Old Testament is the story of God introducing himself to humanity. Through his relationship with a people group, he decided to make himself known through the Israelites. But he takes attention throughout it, as he does right here in this passage, to make sure that we know the Israelites aren't the only people that he loves. His word is for everybody, for all people. We don't get to decide what that means. We don't get to decide who those people are. We don't get to decide who's excluded from it. Our sense of justice is not higher than God's sense of justice. But as Christians, we've done a lot of deciding of that over history. Maybe you're guilty of that. Or worse, maybe you're a victim of that. Maybe you carry the hurt of being excluded from the church or excluded from the gospel and you've been hurt by Christians, you've been hurt by a church, you've been hurt by a pastor, I'm sorry. I am so, so sorry. Because Jonah makes it clear, God makes it clear, the gospel message is for all people. It's for you. It's for your family. It's for your friends. It's for the people who voted differently than you. It's for the neighbor who yelled at you. It's for the person who called you names and made you feel small. It's for your enemies. It's for the people you care about. The gospel is for all people. Second Kings tells us that this story takes place around 780 B.C., History sources outside the Bible tell us Assyria had a period of peace 
lasting 40 years from 780 BC to 740 BC. It's the only time in Assyrian history where there's no record of wars. They developed some technologies in this time. They developed some, some new systems that carried on into later civilizations during this period. Their culture changed from a warring, conquering people known for violence to a season of peace, prosperity, and morality. It only ended because a violent insurrectionist overthrew the king and led them back into war, beginning with Israel, because Israel was responsible for the peace he saw as weakness. And it really happened. All of this is the true story of what God needs you to know about himself. Jonah, throughout it, throughout this book in the Bible, it has this recurring theme of redemption. We see it all throughout. Jonah gets redemption. Even though if we study him, maybe we think, I don't know if this guy deserves redemption. He's really mean to these people. But Jonah is worthy of redemption. He's worthy of God's calling up one time, two times, three times, four times. He's worthy of the work of the Lord. Not because I think he is, because God thinks he is. The people of Nineveh in chapter 3 are worthy of redemption. They repent. They draw themselves towards God. They call everyone they know to humble themselves before God, to pursue him, to know him, to go after him, to live how he's telling them to live. It's what they want in their hearts. And God's wrath relents on them because they are worthy of redemption. And even when Jonah is mad about it, doesn't see it, doesn't understand it, wants justice, not redemption on these people. Even in that moment, both Jonah and the Ninevites are still worthy of God's redemption. If you learn anything from the book of Jonah, let it be this. No matter who you are, you are worthy of God's redemption. No matter who they are, they are worthy of God's redemption. You can be in relationship with him no matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter what you are doing, no matter, no matter who you are. God desires relationship with you because he is a compassionate and gracious God. Jonah knew this would happen because this is the very nature of God. It is who he is. He is kind. He is gracious. And he is the one who decides value and nobody else. You have immense value to him. And so do the people that you don't agree with. My hope, my prayer is that as a church, we just reflect that on the city we live in. If you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, maybe you didn't think you could, maybe you didn't think you were worthy of it, you didn't think you, you belonged, maybe somebody made you feel that way, I want to give you the opportunity to enter into a relationship with him that is going to take you into greater places you ever dreamed possible. That is going to give you greater peace, greater satisfaction, greater joy, greater fulfillment than you knew even were out there. And it's all waiting for you because you are worthy of his love. And if you're here today and you're ready to make that decision, it's, it starts with a prayer, just a declaration acceptance of a gift that's already been offered to you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Heavenly Father, 
I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe you are the one who is worthy of declaring what is and what is not just, who is and who is not worthy, God. I believe that you have made me worthy through your sacrifice on the cross. Forgive me for my sin. I accept your gift. From this day forward, all that I am is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.